Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. The great baseball manager Casey Stengel famously said that he never makes predictions, especially about the future. That also might be good advice for political pundits. For months in the run-up to the election, we heard pundits talk about the Latino vote, that they were all reachable by Democrats, and it was just a matter of Democrats committing more time, more energy, and resources. Latinos were just waiting to be given a reason to vote for Democrats. The problem is that demographics, history, culture, and the hard numbers of the election results themselves tell us that this is simply not true. Since around 1972, Hispanic Republicans have developed their own partisan identities and an actual loyalty to the Republican Party. Even to this day, there are issues that continue to draw Latino voters into the Republican Party. Imagine if this took place in the Trump era, what it would mean in the future for Republicans. Clearly, Latinos are not a monolithic group, but rather complicated human beings that are not just pieces to be moved around on a political chessboard. Bringing this all into bold relief is our guest today, Geraldo Cadava. Geraldo Cadava is an associate professor of history and Latinx studies at Northwestern University, and his new book, garnering lots of national attention, is The Hispanic Republican, The Shaping of an American Political Identity from Nixon to Trump. Geraldo, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. It's great to be here. So interesting how both sides have called Hispanics and Latinos natural Democrats or natural Republicans. There's a couple of quotes that I know you've you've talked about in the past that Harry Reid, the former majority leader, senator from Nevada, said he couldn't understand how a single Hispanic could be a Republican. And going all the way back to Ronald Reagan, who said that Latinos are Republicans who just didn't know it yet. Talk about that first. Well, I just think that those statements have to be heard as nothing more than uh, efforts to capture some sort of partisan advantage, because I just don't think Hispanics or Latinos, and I guess for the purpose of this conversation, I'll stick with Hispanics, since that's the term I use in my book, because it's the term preferred by most Hispanic conservatives. But I think that there's just no such thing as a, a natural Hispanic anything, whether it's liberal or Democrat. I just don't think that that's how partisan identity develops. I don't think we're born naturally anything. I think our partisan identities evolve over time in a conversation with our families, with our communities, our own sense of what's just and right in the world. And so it's a a complicated business. And I think the risk of just asserting that Latinos are naturally one way or the other, naturally anything, is just that it, it kind of keeps us in this cycle of not understanding the complexities of Latinos. Talk a little bit about how that mythology evolved as you see it. How did this conventional wisdom develop that assumed for so long that Hispanic voters were not going to vote Republican? I think it's developed over a long period of time. I think Hispanic Republicans, even in the 1950s and 1960s, when they were starting to build a Hispanic Republican movement, would talk about the fierce loyalty to the Democratic Party that Latinos developed uh, beginning in the 1930s during Roosevelt's New Deal, because Roosevelt put more food on the table, helped Latinos find jobs in moments that were difficult for them. And so a fierce loyalty developed to the Democratic Party. And Hispanic Republicans beginning in the 1950s tried to start cracking that uh, loyalty by saying things like, you know, what have what have you Latinos actually gotten 
for your loyalty to the Democrats when the Democrats continue to prioritize and care more about other groups. And so they started to make the argument that, you know, all Latinos are going to be better off if both parties take us seriously and fight for our vote. So I think the idea that, you know, the, the fight over the idea that Hispanics are either naturally liberal or naturally conservative started to develop in the 50s and 60s when political parties, for a whole variety of reasons we can talk about, started taking Latinos more seriously as a voting bloc because, primarily because they were concentrated in newly electoral rich states like Texas, California, and Florida. Talk about the early stages of that, going back to 1972 and the way that came about. I mean, I think you could go back even a little further to the Eisenhower years and the Gold War years, Goldwater years, but, uh, you know, the efforts in the 50s and 60s really were kind of localized, mm -hmm. maybe regional, concentrated in the Southwest, New York, and Florida hadn't really become that important because, uh, you know, many Cuban Americans didn't naturalize in great numbers until the 1970s because for much of the 1960s, they were still focused on politics on Cuba and ousting Castro and forming a government in exile, planning for the moment when they could return triumphantly to Cuba. So they didn't really invest in American politics until the 1970s and much more in the 1980s. So this, mo this moment, this movement in the 1950s and 60s really was kind of nascent and emerging and it hadn't fully coalesced. But Richard Nixon, during his first term, again, for a whole variety of reasons, made a much more concerted effort among Latinos. Part of it had to do with the fact that he was from California and has a whole uh, you know, story about his upbringing, that he grew up near Mexican-Americans and was familiar with their issues. Many Mexican-Americans from Southern California really bought into that idea and thought that he was a politician who represented them. He also had strong connections with the Cuban community in Miami, and one of his best friends was Bebe Raposo. And, uh, you know, this was also a moment when African-Americans were fleeing from the Republican Party after the Republican Party's decision to oppose the Civil Rights Act and to embrace the Southern strategy. And Republican strategists knew that uh, the Republican Party had to replace those lost votes by courting votes elsewhere, and Latinos became a prime target. So there were a lot of reasons that came together during Nixon's first administration to really cause him to boost his party's efforts to recruit Latinos. And those efforts continued through the Reagan years, but, but after that, and, and even towards the later stages of that, it began to change. What happened? Yeah, well, you know, one, one main shift from the Nixon years to the Reagan years is that Nixon really based his outreach efforts on a politics of patronage. And he, you know, wanted to create more federal government jobs for Latinos. And he made some high level appointments like the first Hispanic treasurer of the United States. There were some issues like, you know, anti-communism, economic uplift. These were issues in the Nixon years, but Reagan was really the first president to try to work with his Hispanic campaign advisors to articulate the, the kind of core ideas that made Latinos conservatives. And they settled on family values and patriotism and a work ethic and anti-communism, things like that. And so the playbook for reaching out to Latinos has remained remarkably consistent from the 1980s to the present. And I think the same 
issues that Trump focused on are the issues that Reagan focused on as well. But in the meantime, the Republican Party changed. I think beginning during the Reagan years, a kind of nativist and xenophobic wing grew within the Republican Party, and it's represented by organizations like the Federation for American Immigration Reform that wanted to limit the growth of immigration. Also, the development of U.S. English, this movement to try to pass a constitutional amendment to make English the official language of the United States. For a while in the 1980s, a woman named Linda Chavez, who also worked in the Reagan administration and still today is kind of leading Latina conservative. She was the president of U.S. English. And I think most importantly, you have the rise of a kind of primary challenger like Pat Buchanan, who really based his primary campaign on nativism and xenophobia and called for the construction of a border wall in 1992. So, and in 1992, that's when he won like 37% of primary votes against George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, and therefore kind of had a, a significant influence in crafting the party platform. So basically what happened in the 90s is the party moved further to the right on immigration and border control. And since then, Hispanic and Latino Republicans have had to, in a much more concerted way, justify their continued support for the Republican Party. And of course, California was in many ways a symbol of what was going on back in the mid-90s with Prop 187. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, Prop 187 is still kind of thought of as the death knell for the Republican Party in California. But, you know, Pete Wilson, Governor Pete Wilson's movement in California spread across the United States. And then a couple of years later, Congress passed the restrictive immigration law, the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act. That's a mouthful, Erira. But that, too, that was kind of a symbol of the national movement toward an increasingly anti-immigrant sentiment. And therefore, Latino Republicans, when George W. Bush was made the nominee for the uh, Republican Party in 2000, they exhaled and kind of sighed in relief, hoping that George W. Bush's nomination would signal a kind of return to a more sane and inclusive era of the Republican Party. And George W. Bush had had a lot of success with Latino voters in Texas. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in his gubernatorial campaigns, he won almost half of the Mexican-American and Latino vote in Texas. And I think, you know, he was also really building on his family's deep connections. His father, George H.W. Bush, was the chairman of the Republican National Committee when the Republican National Hispanic Assembly was formed. And he really championed the formation of that group that became a kind of official auxiliary within the RNC. His brother, Jeb, really helped his father in Puerto Rico win the first Puerto Rican primary in 1980. And so, you know, and then Jeb went on to play a significant role in Florida politics and was a campaign advisor for Ileana Ross Letton and the first Cuban-American congresswoman. So I think George W. Bush, as much as he, you know, himself did really well in Texas, was kind of building on his family's longtime efforts to build relationships with Latinos. Talk about leadership, political leadership, and and overall leadership in the Hispanic community, which in terms of the leadership that tends to get the national attention, tends to be more democratic, more liberal leadership. And that's why it often appears to be a natural place for Democrats, although that's not really what's going on under the surface. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I think that under the surface, 
leadership and political inclusion and Latinos gaining prominent positions, both in state and local party politics and in national politics, those have been important values, both for the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And I think, you know, I just mentioned this group called the Republican National Hispanic Assembly, the whole idea behind the formation of the Republican National Hispanic Assembly. And I should say that it was really organized. I mean, there was a national committee, but there were also state chapters and and congressional district chapters. And the whole idea was both to identify and recruit more Latino conservatives to run for office and to recruit new kind of grassroots members to join the Republican Party. And that, in many ways, just kind of builds on the civil rights movements of the late 1960s and early 1970s, which in a real way were were about inclusion in politics. So, you know, I think the idea of leadership has been important and having representatives in all levels of government has been really important to Latinos in both the Republican and Democratic Party. And yet the voting patterns among Latinos tends to be lower compared to other groups. Talk about that. Yeah, that's right. Um, It's true that Historically, the Latino turnout rate has been below 50 percent at about 47, 48, 49 percent. And one early kind of bad interpretation of that low rate of participation had to do with apathy. And you have this idea of the sleeping giant, which kind of conjures all of these images of a drunk Mexican with a bottle of tequila hunched against the wall and just apathetic and not interested in participating. But Political scientists and others have shifted away from that, thankfully, and the idea now, the prevailing idea is that it has to do with um, alienation from American politics and that politics wasn't really, American politics at least, wasn't really designed for Latinos. It was, as some of the people I studied called it, a, a white man's game. So, you know, there are lots of reasons for that alienation. Some of it has to do with outright discrimination, other things have to do with, other reasons have to do with the fact that Latinos, except for, you know, the the battleground states that we pay attention to, like Texas and Arizona, or increasingly Texas, not even historically, but uh, places like Arizona, Texas, and Florida tend to be concentrated in non-competitive states like California, New York, and Illinois. And so Latinos, especially in these non-competitive states, have often felt too like their votes don't really count. But I think what we've seen in the past two election cycles, and I mean the 2018 midterm and the 2020 election, is a much greater rate of participation. I think it was somewhere around two-thirds of eligible Latinos participated in the uh, 2018 midterms. I think that's right. In 2020, you know, I think it it, all uh, numbers point to the fact that somewhere around 60% of Latinos participated compared with 48, 49, again, that historical average. So, you know, that's a good sign. I mean, I think Latinos are, are more engaged and like many Americans were more engaged by the 2020 election. So hopefully that'll be a, an enduring trend. Certainly there, there's, as you talk about, a hierarchy of politics among Hispanics from more conservative, less conservative, more liberal, less liberal. What about as it relates to both generational divide and gender divide? We never hear much about those breakdowns within that voting block. Talk about that. Yeah, I think those are great questions. And, you know, this this term, this this election cycle, in a way that you know, I don't really recall as much attention being paid to this in, in earlier election cycles. 
there was a real focus on this growing gender gap and, uh, you know, citizenship differences and also, I think, um, educational differences. And so, you know, in 2016, talking just about the gender gap, it was uh, reported that Hillary Clinton's Latino support, two-thirds of it came from women, one-third came from men. The exact opposite was true for Donald Trump, where two-thirds of his Latino support came from men and one-third came from women. And that's a much more pronounced gender gap than had existed in prior years. This isn't something I study deeply, but having conversations with other political scientists and historians who have, the gender gap among Latinos and Republicans in general was much narrower if it existed at all in the 1980s. And so that is something that has developed over the past 30 years. And I think with the generational divide, the the main idea is that, especially when you have a Republican like Donald Trump basing so much of his first four years in office, looks like only four years in office, kind of crafting anti-immigrant policies, making anti-immigrant statements, how could it be that new Americans, new Latin American immigrants who recently naturalized could support a Republican candidate like Donald Trump or the Republican Party in general that, that isn't seen widely to represent Latin American immigrants? But, and that's true in general, I think. But the interviews I've done have pointed to some really interesting things. So when I was talking to the uh, Republican Party chairman in El Paso, he was telling me that he personally goes to all of the naturalization ceremonies in the city to hand out uh, literature that states what the values of the Republican Party are. And he gives them to new American citizens, literally in the process of naturalizing. And the same thing with Latino evangelical churches. I mean, I think Latino evangelical churches are it's largely a, a Latin American immigrant religion. They're evangelicals in Latin America. They move to the United States and either join or start Latino evangelical churches. And I think the reason that these things are important is that they both show that the Republican Party in its own way is still trying to make inroads among Latin American immigrants. I think on the one hand, that's just an acknowledgement of reality that it's the Republican Party is going to continue to have success. They're going to have to make inroads among immigrant communities. Um, but I also think it's a kind of statement of values like religious liberty and immigrant lift and opportunity that many immigrants come to the United States still hoping that the United States will represent. So I think it would be, you know, it might be true in general that uh, more recent immigrants tend to be Democrats than Republicans, but I wouldn't want to get too comfortable in that idea because I wouldn't want Democrats to fall asleep as they seem to have done that uh, immigrants are theirs to lose. Is there a difference between the evangelicals and the Catholics within the immigrant community as it plays out in a political sense? Yeah, there, there is. I mean, there are differences and, and not just in politics. Yes, yes. Uh, Latino evangelicals tend to vote for Republicans at a higher rate than Catholics. Um, you know, there are also the political issues that, you know, and these are broad brushstrokes, but broad brushstrokes, but, you know, it's often said that Catholics tend to have more of a social welfare ethic and uplift of the whole community rather than individualism. And it's said that evangelicalism is a faith that's much more 
permissive and encouraging of, you know, the attainment of individual economic success. And those are reasons that help explain it. I don't know that they're kind of perfect characterizations, but, you know, about half of Latino evangelicals vote for Republicans. And again, it's not, so it's not that Latino evangelicals are all conservative. It's that a, a, a greater percentage of Latino evangelicals is conservative than the Latino population in general. And I think that's why the Republican Party sees Latino evangelical churches as a kind of fertile recruiting ground. What do you sense is the attitude within the Latino community by this, the way in which the media, by and large, paints them as this monolithic voting block? What is the reaction to that? Ah, it's been so interesting to watch um, since the 2020 election. There have been real debates about the very definition of Hispanic and Latino identity itself. And I think that that's just so interesting because, you know, I think Latino voters have always seen ourselves as diverse, not monolithic. We're representative of, you know, maybe pan-ethnic national groups, but also individuals on the ground who are representatives of our national groups. And so there, for a long time, there has been a lot of infighting and debate and difference of opinion among Latinos about what the character of our ethnic and racial identity is. And it's been so interesting to see that debate come front and center. Uh, on the one hand, some people are saying that, you know, there's really no such thing as a Hispanic or Latino. We're all just Americans. On the other hand, people kind of react against that idea very strenuously by saying that, no, we are a kind of racialized minority group and even a voting bloc. And, and there are I didn't even realize this until the past couple of weeks that there are real practical consequences to being considered a, a voting bloc. And there are debates about whether a bloc constitutes a kind of 80-20 split or a 70-30 split among voters. But that has to do with how different blocks of voters are protected. So there's a real investment in continuing to consider Latinos as representatives of a voting bloc. So I would say, to me, the real essence of what Latino identity is, is just an ongoing conversation and debate about what it means to be Latino. I don't think the point is to necessarily resolve these questions, but I think the point is the conversation itself. I don't know that debates about Latino identity or will ever be solved. It's interesting to see the way that's playing out in the Latinos that choose to run for political office, both Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. Who, who are you thinking about in particular? Well, I mean, you know, Mike Garcia is a good example in, you know, California 25. Yeah. And it surprises people as they start to see Hispanic Republican candidates. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, you know, the thing that's interested me as a historian is that, you know, now this argument about whether there is such a thing or Hispanics or Latinos at all is taken up by liberals and conservatives. And there are people on both ends of the spectrum taking up this idea that there's no such thing as a Hispanic or a Latino. But historically, that was a conservative idea exclusively. And the argument, even among many people that I interviewed for my book, was that you know, we don't want to be hyphenated Americans. We don't want to be Mexican-American or Cuban-American. We want to be just American, maybe American of 
Mexican-American or an American of Mexican descent or an American of Cuban descent, but we don't want to be Mexican-Americans. And one of the people I interviewed even, you know, objected to the title of my book, uh, The Hispanic Republican. He wanted me to instead say a Republican of Hispanic descent. I mean, that doesn't make for the catchiest of titles, but I think it's indicative of how many conservatives feel about identity politics. But I think many on the left are also kind of embracing this idea of how we're all Americans, in part because the term Hispanic or Latino has historically marginalized many people who consider themselves Latino, like Afro-Latinos, for example. You know, they don't feel that their experiences have been perfectly represented by terms like Hispanic or Latino. So I think this is going to be one of the really important conversations over the next four years is this kind of continued nuancing and complexity of the Latino community, and not just in terms of how we identify like ethnically, racially, but also urban, rural divides, class divides, whether we're, you know, naturalized two years ago, or whether our families have been here for generations. I think it's going to be a really interesting thing to watch. Is there a problem overall for Democrats, perhaps in particular, in wanting to look at the Hispanic community the way they look at the African-American community? And clearly it's a very different, it should be a very different point of view. I think that is an emerging idea. I mean, for one thing, it's just a fact that African-Americans have much more consistently voted for Democrats at about that 90 to 10 percent split, where the Latino vote has fluctuated much more greatly between, you know, 20 percent of support for Republicans on the low end to 40 or 44 percent support for Republicans on the high end during the George W. Bush years. So I think it's just a fact that Latinos are much swingier um, than African-Americans. And I think that, you know, the goal for Democrats, of course, is to try to keep keep it closer to the 80-20 split than the 60-40 split. But I think there are real debates about how to do that. And I think, you know, one thing you'll hear someone like Chuck Rocha, who worked on the Sanders campaign, saying is that you really need to go meet different Latino communities where they are instead of trying to paint them with a broad brush. And I think the tension, though, comes in trying to, like the Biden campaign, for example, trying to articulate a national message, not just for Latinos, but for all Americans, when, in fact, on the ground, the message you need to appeal to Mexican-Americans in the Rio Grande Valley, for example, in Texas, is just much different than the message you need to appeal to Latinos in California and Los Angeles, for example, in particular. And, you know, I think that there are probably greater commonalities between Mexican-Americans in the Central Valley of California and Mexican-Americans in the Rio Grande Valley than there are between Mexican-Americans in the Central Valley of California and a city like Los Angeles, even though both of those communities are in the same state. So I think that there's going to have to be some real thinking about how to reach, how to bridge that divide between articulating a national message that you know, captivates the attention of Democrats nationally at the same time that you pay attention to local variations and differences. I mean, for Democrats, really, the driving force is going to be in those states that are swing states where it becomes critical for them to have to do this in places like Texas or Arizona, North Carolina or Georgia. I mean, that's absolutely true. Uh, I think the only risk in continuing to focus on Latinos as you know, located in these critical battleground states like 
Texas and Florida and Arizona and North Carolina and Georgia. I mean, increasingly North Carolina and Georgia. That hasn't always been the case. But the risk in doing that is that it makes uh, Latinos all across the country as seem like uh, a kind of regional population in hmm. critical battleground states rather than a national population. So it's also just true that the number of eligible Latino voters in states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, Minnesota, Pennsylvania is far greater than the margin of victory in those states. So Latinos, I think, can truly make a difference all across the map, not just in the battleground states that we pay attention to. And I think that that's another, you know, bridge that uh, that national Democrats, local Democrats are going to have to figure out how to cross because you have to walk this line between simultaneously seeing us as a national population, 60 million Americans spread across the map and people who live in local communities with very different backgrounds and interests. I think both of those things are true at the same time. And finally, I started this conversation talking about how prognostication was not always a good thing. If we were having this conversation 12 years from now or 16 years from now, what do you think is going to be fundamentally different about how we talk about this? Oh, man, that's a great question. And I think a really important one. And I think that, you know, a lot of I, I hope I really hope that if something comes out of this election, some of that work uh, about kind of really deepening our understanding of who Latinos are, who we've been, who we're going to become, I really hope that that conversation develops over the next few years. And I, of course, am invested in this conversation as a historian of Latinos, and I think that we should all be taking more Latino history classes. But, you know, I think what the future holds is a really great question. And you can already see both sides kind of jockeying for control of this narrative. And so people like Marco Rubio are already tweeting things like what you saw happen in South Florida and South Texas is a glimpse into the future of the Republican Party. We're going to become a non-white party for working class Americans. And then you hear like Latino decisions, for example, these are Joe Biden's mm -hmm. Latino pollsters. On the other hand, focusing exclusively on this narrative that, you know, Latinos showed up in 2020 in record numbers and made a critical difference in states like Arizona and Nevada, even though their own 2016 and 20 election eve polls also noted a pretty dramatic shift among Latinos, even in states like Arizona and California. Those polls found that even in states like Arizona, Latino support for Trump shifted from 12 to 26 percent and in Nevada from 16 to 25 percent. I don't know that we know those numbers are, are, you know, those aren't results. Those are prognostications. But the point is, both of these narratives are true, that there was a shift toward Trump and a greater number of Latinos voted and helped Biden win in, in key states. So what I would like to see happen is to stop partisan jockeying about those numbers and see both of those narratives as true at the same time, because I believe that that will lead to a more rich and complex understanding of who Latinos are. I think it's important to not only see Latinos as voters who can help swing elections, but just to see us as 60 million Americans and a growing share of the American population that has, you know, really complex views about politics, but also come from really diverse backgrounds. And I think the goal should be to understand us in 
kind of all of our complexity. Geraldo Cadava, his book is The Hispanic Republican, The Shaping of an American Political Identity from Nixon to Trump. Geraldo, I thank you so much for spending time with us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. Thank you, Jeff. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.